Welcome to Christ the King this morning. We are in a sermon series titled The Songs of Jesus. We're looking at the Psalms. This is the last Sunday of that series, and it's Psalm 96. It's a song of worship, a psalm of praise, sing to the Lord, is one of the opening refrain, and that sets the tone for the entire psalm. As we look at this psalm, we're going to see two things in psalm of praise. We're going to see why we praise God, and we're going to see, remember from grammar, indicative statements. So we're going to see a few statements that are indicative. They're going to describe God's character and why we should praise Him, why He's worthy of our praise. Second thing we're going to see is a bunch of imperative statements, a bunch of commands. We're going, to, we're going to observe that this psalm actually tells us more of, just commands us to worship, and I think that tells us a little bit about ourselves as well. So we're going to look at those two things, some statements about God, why we should worship Him, and then some, some commands as to how we are to worship Him. And as we look at this, we're going to learn something about God, and I think we're going to learn something about ourselves as well. So let's jump right in. Why do we praise God? Why do we gather for worship? Why do we sing? Well, we're told in verse 3, 4, well, verse 4, 5, and 6 of this psalm. You can follow along with some sermon notes in the back, but take a look at verse 4, uh, verse 6, verse 13, for instance. The Lord is great. He is highly to be praised. He is more to be feared than all gods. We'll come back to verse 5. Glory and majesty are before him. Glory means weightiness. He is a, he's significant. Uh, he's weighty. Uh, we praise God because he is the coming judge. Verse 13, he comes the judge of the earth. So why do you praise God? Because he is good. His character is righteous. His majesty is great. Now that's important, but my hunch is that's not new news for any of us. Uh, one of the first prayers I learned as a young child was God is great. His majesty is great. His character is good. Therefore, let us thank him for our food. So the fact that God is good, the fact that God is great is really important, but my hunch is that's not particularly novel for any of us here. So that's the first reason we praise God. Second reason we praise God, let's take a look at verse 5. It's not what God is, but what everything else is not. So as for the uh, gods of the nations, they are but idols. And an idol is simply anything other than God that you invest with your energy, your power, you invest it with meaning and purpose. And I stumbled on a great illustration of what idolatry is and the dangers of it. This from one of my favorite authors, J.R. Tolkien. It's a correspondence uh, that he had with... Uh, uh, a critic of his, his, of his uh, book, The Lord of the Rings. Quick plot summary. So the bad guy in The Lord of the Rings is a fellow named Sauron. And Sauron is wicked and he's menacing and he's out like all bad guys to rule the world. And uh, he has invested all of his power into a ring. Thus, the Lord of the Rings. He is the Lord of the Rings. And so... Uh, the story goes on that the, the quest of these heroes is to destroy the one ring. Interesting, every other adventure is to find something, but uh, in Tolkien's book it was to destroy something. So, and they do this by the end of the book, and when the ring is destroyed, it falls into, the, uh, you know, falls into a volcano, and when that happens, Sauron just poof, he disappears. It's like, a, he's, it's like picture ash after it's, uh, a wood has been burned, the ash is left, and just poof, that's all it is. It just goes away. And uh, 
Rona Beer, you can follow along in your sermon notes if you're interested, was a contemporary, like most of the story, she just didn't like this depiction of evil. Because here you have this phenomenally threatening character, I mean, orcs and dragons and all that stuff, and all it takes is this little destruction of a trinket, a destruction of a ring, and he's gone. And she said, that doesn't make sense. Great book, I just don't understand your depiction of evil, that uh, a little trinket goes bye-bye and this wicked lord goes, goes away. And here's what Tolkien says in response. He says, the ring of Sauron is only one of the various mythical treatments of placing one's life or one's power, that's what an idol is, we place our life, we place our power, we find purpose in it, uh, only one of the various mythical treatments of placing one's life or power in some external object which is thus exposed to capture or destruction with disastrous results to one's self. And that's what an idol is, and that's the danger of idolatry, right? So you, you put your hope or trust in some money is a pretty uh, low-hanging fruit for idolatry for all of us. We put our hope or trust in finances, and poof, it goes away with disastrous consequences to ourself. Romance is another pretty uh, common idol for us. And here is the problem with human nature is that we are all prone to idolatry. Uh, every one of us, even good church-going folks like us, idolatry is just part of the DNA. So uh, David Wallace is someone I've quoted before, philosopher, author. In a commencement speech, he said this, every, in the real, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships something. Everybody places their life in some external object. We all do. The only choice is what you get to place your trust in. Worship money and things, Wallace continues. If that's where you tap into meaning in life, you'll never have enough. Worship your own body, you will feel ugly when, and when time starts to age and when time and age start to show, you'll die a million deaths. Here he's saying, he's saying, put your trust in some external object and when the external object is subject to capture or destruction, poof, your life crumbles. So that's idolatry and that's the danger of idolatry. Why? Because the idols are nothing. God is weighty. He is glorious. The idols are nothing. They can't support the weight we put on them. So two reasons to worship God. One, God is great. Two, idols are not. My hunch is that most of you all know this. Second commandment is don't make an idol. Like, this is important, but it is not novel. Our problem is not that we don't know this. Our problem is not that we don't know that God is great and that idols are not great. I know that. I know that money doesn't breed happiness. I know that uh, life's purpose doesn't find in romance and in success. You know that. I know that. I know that God is great, that he is worthy of my... The problem that you and I have is we just forget it. In the day-to-day -day trenches of life, God just does not matter to you and me, to any of us. I mean, sure, we can say it, and we do say it, and we should say it. God is great. But does he matter and does he really abate your stress and your anxiety, your worry? Does he really matter in moments of anxiousness or moments of ethical decisions? And the answer for all of us has to be, well, not as much as he should. 
And so now we're going to turn to some of these imperative statements because I think the psalm is telling us how God can matter. Because what's our problem? God matters. Our problem is we he doesn't matter on a daily basis. Again, let's listen to what David Wallace, uh, that uh, author and philosopher, he uh, continues in this quote. Remember, there's no such thing as atheism. And he says this, um, you know, we all worship something, we all worship money, beauty, sex, whatever. He says, on one level, we know this. So he's talking to, again, he's not preaching. This is a commencement speech. He's talking to a bunch of graduates. One level, we know this. We know we all worship something. It's been codified in myths and proverbs and parables, like, for instance, Lord of the Rings. Uh, it is a skeleton of every great story. Now listen to what he says. The trick is keeping this truth up in front of our daily consciousness. In other words, going through life, not just knowing in your head, not just being able to answer the essay question, God matters, check, idols don't, check, but actually having it be a force in your life. That's the real challenge. And the psalm tells us how. Three imperative statements about how God can matter in your everyday life. And you can follow along with me. The first one is seeing. The second one is ascribe. The third one is tell. Do you want God to matter in your life? He should. He doesn't. Here's how he can. Number one, seeing. There's a great blues song. I couldn't find the quote. Searching hours on Google to no avail. But the great line was, you can't just sing it, you can't just say it, you gotta sing it. If anyone can tell me who said that, I would be very grateful. But that's, a, that's, that's what the song is saying. You can't just say, how can God be great in your life? It's not enough for you and me just to stand up and recite the creeds. As important as that is, we believe in God and we do believe in God. You can't just say it, you gotta sing it. You know the word sing occurs 80 times in the book of the Psalms? And I used to, and also continues in the New Testament, uh, sing songs and spiritual songs. This is your spirit, your act of worship. This is, uh, and I used to think that when the author said sing, I, I don't know, I just didn't take it literally. I, I, I repent. I think when the psalm says sing, it actually means you and I are to sing. Like words set to music. Because here's the thing about song. It has a way of seeping into the nooks and crannies of your life in the way that simple indicative statements don't. Like, you can recite your favorite songs now. And that's what a song does. It sets truth to beauty. And these were the songs, remember the sermon title is the series title, the songs that Jesus sang. When Jesus was in the grind of life, when he was on the cross, these were the songs that he sang. And it probably wasn't just a recitation. I imagine he actually sang the tune. Like singing, why does singing affect us? Why does it seep down into the cracks of your life and come out? Uh, I don't know. It's like asking, why does a sunrise make us happy? But that's what music does. I think you and I are more than just cognitive brains on a stick. You know, it's not like you can just open the head and pour in the right information. It doesn't work that way. We need our affections to be touched. And music does that. 
Praise my soul, the King of heaven. I won't bother singing it for you, but that is number one way we take this truth that God is great and set it before your eyes. Don't just say it, you sing it. Number two, ascribe honor to his name. It's found in verses seven and eight of your uh, service of, uh, of the psalm. Ascribe unto the Lord, O you families of people, ascribe worship and power. That's a word we don't use. We usually don't say that's kind of an uncommon verb. What does it mean to ascribe? Other translations say, you know, reckon or credit the Lord with righteousness. And actually, uh, the, uh, the, this psalm gives us a great definition of what it means to ascribe. So there's something called parallelism in Hebrew poetry. And what that means is that uh, the first stanza is sort of explained by the second stanza. So pick any verse. Uh, verse 6. Glory and majesty are before him. First half, restated. Power and honor are in his sanctuary. You hear the same kind of just uh, sentiment expressed in two different ways. So take a look at verse 7 or verse 8. Ascribe unto the Lord. Honor the Lord. Credit the name of the Lord. How do we do that? Well, bring offerings and come into his courts. Now, that verse should sound familiar to you. That's the verse we say when we gather our offering, and that's the appropriate. How do you set God before your eyes? What this passage is telling us is your heart will always follow your investments. Jesus said, wherever your money is, there your heart will be also. That's, what, that's the truth about human nature. Where your money is, your heart is before. How is God going to be before your eyes? Your heart will follow your investments. And this is not a sermon about financial stewardship to this church. This is a sermon about setting God before your eyes. And I, the Glades give a tithe. The church gives a tithe. I encourage you to give a tithe. And there's something in the Bible called a cheerful giver. I don't think I'm a particularly cheerful giver. I'm a, uh, I give out of self-preservation. Because here's the thing, I know the truth about me, and I'm guessing the truth about you is that you are prone to make money an idol. Like that's number one low-hanging fruit for idolatry. And the only way that I know how to safeguard myself against being like Sauron, being having all my energy in some external object, got to give a little bit of a way. Like, here's the thing. If God doesn't matter in the areas that matter, he doesn't matter. That's simple logic. Monks give up money, sex, and power. Why? Because money, sex, and power are the things that matter most to most people. <laughs> so, if God doesn't matter where it matters, he just doesn't matter. End a sentence. End a paragraph. How do you set God before your eyes? Ascribe to the Lord the honor to his name. Your money, your heart, your affections are going to follow your investment. That's the truth about human nature. And the third thing is tell. This we see in verse 3. We see it again in verse 10. Uh, declare his honor to the nations. Tell it out among the nations. The Lord is king. One of the great benefits, one of the great tools we have to set God before our eyes is a testimony of one another. Like faith is always 
personal, but it's never individual. And one way that we set God before our eyes is through the testimony of others. When we hear what God means to you or the Lord's work in your life, you know what happens? It builds up the person speaking. It sets God before the eyes of the person listening. One of my favorite passages is Isaiah, is Isaiah chapter 6, in which the prophet goes into the throne room of heaven and he sees the angels worshiping the Lord and the angels are doing just what is described here. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. They're describing God, but they're not describing God to God. They're describing God to one another. They called out to one another, look, do you see what I see? Look, do you? They speak. They speak to one another. Do you want God to be set before your eyes? He is great. He is not recognized as great in any of our lives. How can we take a step in the right direction? You gotta sing it. Ascribe to the Lord the honor to his name. You have to speak about him to one another. And here's what I would be thinking if I were in your, sitting where you are sitting. I'd be thinking, okay, I get it. Problem is, I don't like singing. Finances are tight. Speaking about God is just a little bit of a bridge too far for me. Other people can do that. It's just a little bit more shy and timid about my faith. That's what I'd be thinking. But here's the problem. How are you going to avoid being like Sauron if you never sing to God, you never give to God, you never speak about God? Your heart is simply going to rest upon something else. And so, friends, I want to encourage you. Sing to God. Hum to God. Whistle as you leave the church. Take this service leaflet. Uh, it's got great music. You know, I'll often... Wait outside for the, uh, for, you know, the parishioners to trickle out and grab a cup of coffee, uh, lemonade now, and I'll just hum the, the closing hymn. Hum it. In moments of anxiety, hum, sing. Ascribe honor to his name. Speak to others about him. Speak to your children. Speak to your loved ones. Speak to a friend. Tell them who God is in your life. Why should you do it? Well, because God deserves it. And why should you do it? Because you need it.